This show is brought to you by Made by Super. Hiring a design studio is more necessary than you think. Your brand is important, and how it's represented shouldn't be phoned in. Whether it's your logo, website, messaging, online ads, environment, graphic design, or social media, you need professionals, thinkers, advocates for your brand, people that will make you look good. It will make a difference. Trust me. Go to madebysuper.com and hire great designers to get to work for you on your brand. Also brought to you by Age Old Trade Design, LA's premier hospitality design firm. Hey guys, Eddie K. Thomas is my guest today. Eddie's been acting since he was a wee babe. Most famously, he played Finch in American Pie. You might also recognize him from the Harold and Kumar movies. But before he was a movie star, as a kid, he acted on Broadway in The Diary of Anne Frank. He's continued in theater as an actor and also done some directing and playwriting. He's also done a ton of TV, of course. He starred on that show on Fox, Till Death. I played his wife on that show. (laughs) And he was in the HBO series, How to Make It in America. And most recently, you may have watched him saving the world in the CBS series, Scorpion. Enjoy. It is a skeleton, and you have to discover where the bones go. What I need for my life, I am drawn to create the play. And you must use the play. This is like kind of great because actually, um, you were we, you were like the guy that I was playing opposite in my first ever like real TV show. We were married. We were married. We had an amazing TV marriage (laughs) that just disappeared into the ether. Oh my gosh, we did. It did. It totally disappeared. That was like, that show was like, what was your experience of that show? Was it, well, you had a lot going on, man. Well, we should tell the world that the show was called Till Death. The show was called Till Death. We had one episode that killed in the ratings after American Idol. Right. I don't really know how else it did. We premiered after American Idol. Might have premiered after American Idol, and Mm -hmm. we were a big hit for like a week. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, That was a big deal. Well, because also Brad Garrett had come off of Everybody Loves Raymond. It was the season after Everybody Loves Raymond ended. Brad Garrett, Emmy winner, Emmy winner, hilarious, very talented man. Uh, This was his show, and it was me, you, Jolie Fisher, and him. Yeah, young couple, old couple. and sitcoms are my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Maybe not my only favorite thing to do, but I think it's just an incredible, wonderful thing that an actor gets to do. Um, I totally agree. Can you talk about why? Um, like, what's your favorite part of it? The schedule yeah. is as good as a schedule gets. You work for two or three hours on Monday, three or four hours on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Maybe four hours on Wednesday, and then Thursday, Friday are real days. <laughs> um, I love the vaudeville feel of um, people that come to laugh, and sometimes it's not that hard to make them laugh yeah, if yeah. they're told to laugh. Uh, I like cheating like that. Um, new material every week, the energy building up to a show. Um, Yeah, it just feels real old-timey. I think my dream would be, if I could do anything at any time, it would be in like the 
old Hollywood studio system. Like I have a career that started in vaudeville <laughs> and then be a contract player and be like a cowboy on a Monday <laughs> and a mad scientist on a Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. And then yeah, you like, get to like do a lot of acting. Yeah, yeah, man. But you feel like you're in a factory. Yeah, I like yeah. the factory feel of being in a sitcom. Right, right. So me and you worked at the factory together. Yeah, we worked at the factory. Um, yeah, the factory feel like there's something kind of great about actually knowing like what is at being asked of you on a daily basis. Yeah, because a lot of shows aren't aren't like that. I mean, yeah, like procedurals can be like that. Sitcoms are like that. I mean, I guess once you're in like your second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth seasons of things, like it, then it starts to feel like you know kind of what the show feels like. But there are a lot of shows that feel like movies. Sometimes being an actor, you people say, "Well, you gotta <clears throat> you gotta do the work," and you gotta. I, sometimes I don't know what the hell the work is. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, shouldn't I just read these words yeah. and stand on the mark and say the thing? And with a sitcom, especially, and with procedurals, it's really clear what the work is. Right, right, right. And I like that. Right, right. I like the simplicity of it. And so much of the business is chaotic that it's just so refreshing to go, okay, they need me to do this. And I did it wrong or I did it right. It can be really annoying on a sitcom. So on a sitcom, the writers sit and watch the rehearsal. And when you do a line that they wrote that they like that the way you did it, they will laugh hysterically. <laughs> and if you say a line that they wrote in the wrong way, they won't laugh. And that can be really annoying. Um, but I also like the fact that it's either yes or no. By the way, though, like the way you're talking about it right now is so um, like I envy it because for me, when some when they don't laugh, it's not just annoying. It like, right. like it like, like it devastates me. Yeah. <laughs> like Not like I'm disappointed, but like, I immediately feel like, oh, I did it wrong. I'm wrong. Right. See, I don't think they're genuinely laughing when they're laughing because they wrote right. the joke. <laughs> they're the one. There's no surprise for them to laugh at. Yeah. But so like I think it's just their way of saying yes. But you know how like every once in a while, like say, I mean, so on sitcoms, you know, I mean, it depends on the director. There's a lot of factors, but typically in front of a live audience you get like two three runs of the scene at the most right, right. so but you know how like but then sometimes there's also pre-tapes right and if you do a pre-taped scene you get to do you know about the same but maybe a little bit more three four five maybe takes right mm -hmm. and like sometimes you get you can hear everyone laughing if it's just the writers in the room you hear them laughing you hear them laughing at that same spot on the second take and then all of a sudden on the third take they don't laugh right. and it's like then they'll say like oh well it's just joke exhaustion or whatever right, but then right. other times like i go like fuck i messed i did it wrong yeah <laughs> like and i don't ever know what i'm doing or not doing that works right i have no idea and this is probably something i need to figure out what makes me funny and what makes me not funny when I know what I'm doing, when I know what the thing is that I'm doing that makes it funny, I am no longer able to do it. <laughs> right. I cannot be told <laughs> what I've done that made something funny. Because um, then why? Because then you maybe then you're I'm conscious to of it, it and I just can't recreate it, which is probably not a good thing. Right. Which is something I'd like to overcome. Um, be because then you I, you can't call it up. I mean, a, right. a stand-up comic or a a sketch comedian has to say, okay, I had a crappy day. I broke up with my girlfriend. I'm really tired, but I got to go out there and be funny. I've, I've, I think I've been able to get some laughs 
when I've had crappy days, but I just, I don't know what the, you know, what angle my head is at or the cadence of a joke that makes it funny. Right. Right. Um, I know that's one of the things I envy about stand up is that like, it's all sort of designed to have, it's all sort of designed to be funny. So it's mm -hmm. like, well, I mean, usually. And so like if the, if that joke didn't land the same way it did last night, they still have the next one right. to like, kind of like amp up into again. It, like it's sort of the right. same as live theater. Like sometimes, you know, like almost every night this moment gets a laugh, but then if it doesn't, you get to like kind of. So we have to find our places to fail. I think is mm. the way I think I try to overcome that. So though I don't know exactly what it is that I've done to make something funny and I don't have an audience like a stand-up does every night of the week or open mics and, you know, different shows, whether it's auditions or rehearsals, I just try to find as many opportunities as I have as I can find to fail. Yeah, yeah so that, like, that takes a lot of – I mean, that's that's, like, a really counterintuitive philosophy for most people. Like, like – like how did how did that come to you? How did that become something that you were aiming for? Um, I think a lot of years of um, of really being sure I wasn't failing and having a lot of arrogance and thinking that what I was doing was always right and I didn't need to learn anything, and then um, I guess falling on my face or you know, really thinking very highly of myself and then not getting all the things that I felt entitled to, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. go, and then kind of coming to realize, oh, maybe there's something I'm doing or not doing. And I think that was um, a lack of uh, acceptance of failure. Because mm -hmm. all we're doing as an actor most of the time is failing, right? Right. I mean, well, so, so talk about that a little bit. Like, um, so I started acting when I was seven, <laughs> yeah. like you, I started when I was really little. Well, um, but you started professionally. I didn't start professionally until much later. I think I get to say that <coughs> just because geographically I was in New York. Right. So if I was in the Bay area, I would have been doing the same thing as you, just like but I just was at a place where there were quote unquote professional jobs happening. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was just an after-school program that my parents sent me to called New York City Kids on Stage. Um, and was this something you were interested in as a kid, or did did they sort of suggest it, and then you really liked it, or how did that go? I don't know how originally I went there, but I was really excited about it, and I was excited about my first audition. I was going to dress up as a clown, and I had this <laughs> whole clown routine, and I got a pair of my father's pants, and I like um, uncoiled a hanger and wrapped it around the waist so that the waist would be really wide. And I did a thing where I was like tripping and falling and doing all this clown stuff. And to this day, clowning is my favorite thing in the world. Yeah. Um, you took Chris Bay's class, right? I took Chris Bay's class. And that's that. the sorry. most challenging, rewarding thing yeah. I've ever done. Maybe we'll talk about that later. Um, yeah. I hope so. Cause that's okay. Great. Um, and, uh, all about failure, by the way, is Chris Bay's. Um, okay, well, we'll definitely come back to that, but I want to hear more of so, the story of... Um, yeah, so then I was just doing this after-school program, and then a manager came by and saw one of the shows we did and said, I can send you on auditions, and then I 
started going on auditions and I still go on auditions and so I get things sometimes. Was that first, um, was that first audition where you put on the clown pants? Was that for the, the program? Yeah. Oh, okay. Program. Got it. And it was like, I, I think everybody got in. I don't think there was. And do you remember in your, like, I mean, you were seven, so maybe you don't remember, but maybe do, do you remember, were you nervous for the audition or were you just excited? I don't or? really remember. I was definitely excited. And I think I was in that wonderful place that, kids have where you're too dumb to know that you're stupid and what i mean by that is like i was just convinced that the thing that i was doing was something people would be really excited to see yeah and i that's something i want to grab onto every time i right act. i know you know i can't wait to show you this thing oh my god have i got something you're gonna love yeah like if we could bring that every time i, I think we'd we'd win every time but you know, we're full of self-doubt and, oh, my God, am I good enough and am I doing it right? But when I was seven, I was just – I'd been doing this thing in my living room for my parents that killed every night <laughs> in the living room. So I didn't see any reason why I wouldn't kill in front of these people. And probably the most entertaining thing for them was the fact that I was fearless. And I was only fearless because I didn't know anything else. Right. Um, I didn't – I don't think I knew much of doubt. And, you know, my parents were constantly giving me love and reinforcement and encouragement. And I just believed it is truth. Of right. course I'm great. Right. Of course. Um, and I remember as a kid, I just knew I was going to be an actor and I knew I would make a living at it. Mm. And I wish I still had that. But nobody ever told you otherwise at that point. Like you'd never... You, like your parents were very supportive. Yeah. It sounds like no one I, said like you can't be in. Once actor. I got older, my parents told me they didn't think it was going to last. <laughs> How old were you when they told you that? <laughs> like seventeen or eighteen. But by that point, you'd already been on Broadway, right? Right. I think after American Pie came out, they were like, "I didn't think you were going to keep doing this." So but, you were <laughs> like, "Oh, so after American Pie, they were like, okay, maybe you are going to keep doing this." No, they they just said to me, "We thought this was just going to be something you would do for oh, a few it. years." My dad said that to me. Um, but I, um, I was lucky to have that thing where I never felt like I made a choice to be an actor. I just was doing it and that's what I was doing. Right, right, right. Um, it never felt like I was sacrificing another thing and it was because I was so little. And then I got really lucky and I was doing a lot of off, off Broadway and commercials here and there. And I got to understudy on Broadway and, um, do the Diary of Anne Frank and, um, independent films as a teenager and i started doing commercials as a teenager so i was making a living and i stopped taking money from my parents at like 14 15 and then my senior year i did three studio films and i was just like okay well this is what i'm doing and it just made all the sense in the world because it was just happening um were you in performing arts high school i was in a school called professional children's school where they didn't uh have acting or singing or dancing classes in school but they let you go to auditions and made room for your career that school wasn't your first um priority got it um and uh, but you did and so can you talk a little bit about your training like i mean i know you started out in this camp where the you auditioned for but like how did it so then when i was nine i started going to lee straussberg on saturday mornings Mm -hmm. um which in hindsight uh was an incredible thing to be doing 
because I was nine years old doing an hour and a half of relaxation exercises. And like every sense Saturday memory? Morning. Were you doing sense like sense memory, memory at, at like nine? 11. <laughs> um, and meditating. I didn't realize it at the time, but yeah. we were meditating. We would get to class in this wonderful building on 15th Street in New York, um, with like mice on the floor, and it had this great smell, and like Lee Strasberg had actually been there, and um, it just had a great musky acting in the trenches feel to it um and all these nine ten eleven year olds full of childish energy would lay in a chair and do relaxation exercises of breaking an egg over the top of your head and finding all the tension in your body and sitting in an uncomfortable chair for 45 minutes till all the tension was gone and you know, scene work wasn't really something that we focused on, but we did a lot of body work and uh, a lot of voice work, learning to speak from the diaphragm. Um, and what a lucky guy I was to be doing all this stuff and not having any sense of what the, the, the purpose of it was and where it would pay off. Um, and I was like, oh, am I supposed to do 45 minutes of relaxation before every audition? Should I make a long, loud sound for my diaphragm before I speak <laughs> as an actor? Um, but it just got me used to those things and got those things in my body. And then, and then we would do scenes and improvs and start learning how to listen to each other. And um, this was like every Saturday morning as you're growing up. Yeah. The same, now the same class, same group of people A few different at teachers. I had this one guy, Tim Kraus for the first few years, then another guy named Bill Balzac, who I've spoken to over the years, um, and another woman, Anna something. Um, but God, I can't imagine what it was like for them with getting nine-year-olds to do relaxation. Yeah. But what's great about that environment is all the kids are there because they want to do it. Right. You know, it's not like we're in school and we're going from math to history to, okay, now's acting class. We all chose to be there on a Saturday. And was that like the, the would you say that that was your most formative training? Was that class or were there Yeah, other just because things? that, if I could ever say I was in training, that, that would be it. Um, and then I got lucky that I was just doing a lot of off-Broadway, off-off-Broadway shows. Um, I got to work with La Mama when I was like nine years old. Um, you know, I was doing stuff in little theaters in Midtown in like 1988. That, You know what I remember? I remember doing these shows and I worked with this one woman named Penny Arcade who's still around and she's a, an Andy Warhol protege. And we just did this play about what it was like growing up being an Italian in the 1950s. And, I, you know, we were on at... at uh, PS 122 on First Avenue. Yeah. And it was like 89 or 90, and there was literally crack dealers outside. And <laughs> I can't believe my parents let me I do it. I think it was like First and Ninth. First and Ninth, yeah. Because <laughs> I lived exactly. on Ninth between yeah. First and I. I yeah. know that exact corner. And, you know, there was just all this intense stuff in the show. We had one night where um, there was a rape scene in the play. And the way she did the rape scene was the like 14 year old version of her described the rape and the her her real self her 40 year old self stood on stage and nuns with buckets of mud walked into the theater and started throwing mud at her wow while the rape was described and one night some guy said good for you or something and she started throwing the mud back at the audience wow um and i remember one night i was going home and i said to my dad uh 
I wish I could be having cool experiences as a kid like she talks about in the show. I had no sense of what was how interesting it was that what I was you were doing, doing this stuff. Yeah. Um and uh I didn't really feel like I was training for anything or it was formative, but um because I was just doing what was in front of me. And the fact that it was in front of me made it seem like, oh, this is just the thing that I got out of backstage and this is I'm just doing a little show that like thirty people show up to every night. Right. Um and uh I think that's the best way to do it is to not realize how you're being influenced. Um, so, wait, sorry, just I just want to know, because I feel like maybe other people will want to know, too. In this show, what was your... Were you, you were in that show? I was... What did you... Was what was your it. part? So I think I was the... I believe I was... I played her brother as a kid. So I was like 10 years old. And there were, yeah, three young actors in it. And we played her family as a kid. And she played with time and stuff. And I remember there was like half-naked men on crosses in the theater. Wow. Um, and so uh, did your dad come with you, like, every... Yeah, we lived on Staten Island then. Oh, wow. he used to drive me to all the shows. So, yeah. like, I mean, I, I have a lot of questions from, from everything that you just said. I love it all so much. Like, but one of the things I'm really curious about, because I feel like this is... I've never felt like I was on the actor's studio before. This is super fun. Oh, good. This is great for my ego. <laughs> I love it. Oh my God, James Lipton. Maybe would, would he be proud every of me unemployed right now? actor should do this interview. <laughs> totally, this is so great. It makes you feel like you're really like someone. So here's my question, because I feel like you know the one of the main reasons I'm doing this show is because I feel like it's really, you know, I feel like what we learn as actors is really applicable to so many areas of our mm-hmm. of our lives, and I and if that is the case, then you could surmise, I guess, that these areas, that these things that are applicable to so many areas of our lives would be applicable to people who've never acted before in, yeah. in their lives. And I feel like it's like a pretty common thing, like that people talk about no matter what their career is that like at some point they, at some point that feeling of like, um, I don't even know any better. Like there's no such thing as failure goes away and is replaced by this feeling of like, I, um, I'm scared. I'm scared. I might feel, I, you know, I do know better now. I know that people fail all the time. Like I've seen that that happens and there's some fear that arises. And, you know, when you talked about like that audition that you had and putting on those clown pants and like knowing you would kill it. And like, I'm just wondering, do you have a memory a specific memory when when that changed yeah. or you do yeah so i did american pie when i was 17 and everything was playing out exactly like i had written my memoir before it would happen i was you know i was graduating high school and i was like guys i'm an incredible actor what do you see, what do you see? <laughs> and um you know a great thing about doing a movie when you haven't done movies before is there's a great energy on a movie set of like, this is going to be great. This is going to be really good. And I had done two movies before American pie where while we were shooting it, we're like, guys, this is really good. This is really good. And then it comes out and nothing happens. So then American pie was happening and people were like, this is really good. This is really funny. And I was like, I've kind of heard that before, Mm -hmm. but then it came out and it was this crazy huge thing. And I was like, okay, here we go. Now, here comes your next Tom Hanks world. <laughs> I'm ready. Um, and I didn't work for nine months. After and it came out. After it came out. 
and I was just smoking a ton of weed. Mm -hmm. And at 18 years old, I was convinced I had failed. Mm. I was convinced it was just all over. And there was just so much self-hatred and self-doubt. And um, I had just built myself up so high. Mm. And then everything was fine in hindsight. I was fine. Nothing was wrong. <laughs> right. But in my head, I was like, well, where's my Academy Award? Yeah. I was in a successful movie. Doesn't everybody know where I should be right now? Um, not really taking a moment to just enjoy the fact that I was in a movie that was being watched and was funny and people were Isn't enjoying it. amazing that it only takes nine months? Like, it only took you nine months to go from, like, the next Tom Hanks to, like... Oh, it to, took like, me, uh, like, two weeks. <laughs> yeah. Like, nothing's happening. And I'm saying I didn't ruined. work for nine months. Yeah. But it might have oh, only sure. been six two months. Weeks. Right. But, like, a week or two after the movie came out, I was like, well, what, what's going on? Where I is my I parade? Failed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what a victim I am. Because I can't even talk to anybody about how hard this is. Right, of course. Um when? I feel like a lot of actors experience that because, yeah. like, you're in a very successful movie, but you feel horrible about your life. Right. But And everyone else is like, what is wrong with right. you? Like, right. how dare right. you? And then poor me, poor me, poor me, because I can't even talk about this deep, intense pain that I have. Right. And in hindsight, it was probably that I figured that having uh, a movie be successful would make me feel amazing. And there were great parts of it, but it didn't make me feel as amazing as I thought it would. So that just made me feel even worse. Right. And it was actually time to sit back and enjoy this and appreciate it. But I just needed more and more and more. It's a real – I think that's a, 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 a common downfall amongst actors is we think something is going to make us okay. And it's just not. And, you know, the reality of American Pie was uh, the, the shooting of the movie was a really fun cool experience that kind of had nothing to do with the phenomenon it became. And if I were to do something like that now, I would try to just appreciate that three months of shooting it for what it was and how much we made each other laugh and these cool relationships we formed. And then if the movie came down, enjoy that for what it is, but not think that everything that happens is supposed to mean something else or lead to something else. So is that the lesson you feel like you learned from that experience that um, that instead of sort of getting caught up in your expectation of how something would manifest or like what it would do for you on the outside, you could just appreciate it as it was happening. I guess the lesson that I learned for it, from it is, is kind of that, just that assume that everything that's happening is correct mm. because it's happening and you're not going to change that. So there's no reason to go, no, 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 no. Doesn't the universe know that I'm supposed to do this right now? Right, that's, right. There's nothing but rejection and pain and self-hate <laughs> in that. And then the reality of the situation is you're going to take that into a room on your next audition. Right. So whether you wind up in a movie that does well or you do a play that doesn't do well or you're in a commercial that no one sees or whatever it is, it's probably the right thing to happen. And you got to kind of trick yourself into going, no, this is absolutely perfect. Because as an actor, I think then I was going into rooms with a bit of a grudge on my shoulder. Sure. Yeah. And like this, again, this is like such a common thing. Like, like, you know, for some, somebody who, you know, has, let's say like had a lot of success building a startup and then the startup like crashes or whatever. And then like, they're sort of like, you know, on the ground floor again, trying to build something up or, I mean, forget startups, like in any industry, someone who's had some success and then it's not done what they wanted. 
like what would your advice be to them about how to, to, to do that, what you're talking about? Like how do you continue to go on job interviews or continue to do pitches or continue to like move forward, continue to like have the faith to sit down and start writing something new or whatever the thing is? Um, I just saw Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far on Foot. Ah, I want it with Joaquin Phoenix. I want to see that so badly. It's basically just about a guy who gets, um, there's no spoilers here, Uh, he gets paralyzed in a drunk driving accident Mm. and becomes an incredible cartoonist and he can barely move one arm. Mm. And um, if, if he hadn't had his body destroyed, he would have never drawn in the style that he drew and he would have never had the time to think of these wonderful comic strips and would have never had the story. Now, he could have also felt sorry for himself for the rest of his life and cursed what happened to him. He wasn't even driving the car. Um, He just got into this horrible car wreck. Um, It's a choice. It's a choice to say, okay, this was exactly what was supposed to happen, and here I go from here. And Um, this in this movie, um, this guy was able to say... You know, obviously, it this wouldn't have necessarily been my chosen. I wouldn't have chosen this. I mean, he curses it for a right. Long time but time. then, like this happened, and then at some point, maybe he even arrives at a state of gratitude for that accident because it taught him this whole new craft. Uh, and and you know, for me, I am so grateful that I didn't um, get all the things that I thought I wanted when I was eighteen after American Pie came out. Um, I love that I'm a guy who's making a living as an actor and I've always been able to do that. Um, and I can go to the Grove and hang out and occasionally people recognize me and that's very nice, but (laughs) I can also live in anonymity. I mean, also though, I've been out with you a lot and you get recognized like... Not so much lately. I feel like you get... Maybe just because you have a little shaggy beard. Yeah, maybe it's the beard or... I don't know, but um, yeah, I mean, it does happen, but... It's definitely not. I definitely have friends that it impedes their life. And, sure. And they also get a lot of blessings because of that. But anyway, I mean, the thing that I thought I wanted, I think would have caused more misery than mm. good. Or certainly you might not have learned the lessons that you're so happy that you've now learned. Oh, my learned, God. Right? I was just um, – I got to do a series for four seasons that just ended. Scorpion. Scorpion. Eddie, Eddie and, was just on Scorpion for four and, seasons. <laughs> and <laughs> I couldn't have enjoyed every single day of that more because Ugh, I had so, so many years wanting it. There were good parts of it and bad parts of it and difficult parts and easy parts. But because I had not gotten it and wanted it and failed and seen other people get that kind of thing. Get what? Like a, a long-running series, show. A job, yeah. some money, some yeah. all that stuff. I... I was only able to appreciate it because I started the show when I was 33, 32. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was after 25 years in the business. And I'd done series before. I'd done a series with you before. But, yeah. you know, we did a series that we only got to be a part of for two seasons. Right, right. And, you know, I remember when that ended, I was like, good, I, I want to get off that show. And then like, a couple years later, I was like, that was a pretty good job. Yeah. Um, but it was, it's through... I don't know, not getting what I think I want that I'm able to really appreciate things. And so how did that appreciation, um, how do you feel that that affected your performance? Or do you? Um, So something that has taken me a little bit of time to realize that I still need to work on 
is the fact that we're selling ourselves. You know, if you're a web designer or you're a house painter, you do a thing and then present that thing. We have to sell us, you know, our bodies, our, our, you know, we physically have to look right. Uh, and then our souls, our spirit, the, the way it feels to be with us. You know, Meryl Streep isn't just incredibly gifted at making you think she's someone else. You want to be in a room with her. Mm-hmm. Tom Hanks is someone I would love to sit next to on a plane, not because he's not just because he's Tom Hanks, but because he just has a wonderful energy to be around. Mm. Um, and when I was walking around with a grudge and I still do it, I'm not saying I'm free of that negative energy, but when I can actually have um, okayness in the world when I can really be excited about a moment, when I can be doing a scene on a procedural where I have to catch the bad guy and it really feels like I'm a little kid playing cops and robbers <laughs> and I'm so excited to nail this guy or I'm the bad guy and I'm playing that out. When I'm coming to it with that excitement, I think it translates. I don't think you can fake that, that yeah. real intangible joy. You know, Jonah Hill's incredible mm-hmm. and don't worry, he won't get far on foot. And he's transformative. But I think he also really enjoyed doing it. I don't know. I don't know the guy. I haven't heard any interviews with him. But there's just such a – he's so excited to give you this thing that he has. Yeah. Here's a thing I'm going to do and I've worked on. And I'm so excited to share this with you. Yeah. Um, this all goes back to the Chris Bay's clown work. Well, know. wait. I, so I do want to talk about that. Um, but what I also really want to talk about is, you know, you said that the Lee Strasberg classes when you were a kid – um, that now retrospectively you realize you were essentially meditating. Yeah. Um, and I'm curious about that. Um, I'm curious about what, what felt like meditation about it to you. Um, you literally start by closing your eyes and breathing. You go through your morning. What got you to this place? My mom woke me up. I got in the shower I had a bagel and a chocolate milk. We got in the car. You become present by going through in your memory where you are. Um, and sorry, I don't, it, it, this is so like, I, I hate this question that I'm about to ask, but I also think it's a really important one and it's okay if you, you, you hate it too, but I'm just, it, it's so, it feels so intangible, but can you just, can you talk a little bit like, how do you know that you're present? Like when you say you become present, like what do you... I think the minute you know that you're present, you stop being present, right? <laughs> right, right. Um, uh, I don't I don't. It's kind of like the, the minute you know you're funny, you stop being funny. Yeah, it's, it's exactly the same thing. The same thing. And, right. I, and I I think that's probably um, m- maybe my downfall as a comedic actor is that I need to be in a state of presence in order to really respond or make something funny. But the minute I become aware of that i lose that thing um but um and so then how so when that happens i mean and i i don't hate the question but i do kind of hate the answer that i'm about to give is that's why they call it a practice right the practice of it is doing the thing and it's a great tool as an actor to then assume that everything is happening is correct like right now I could be going, oh, God, this interview is – this isn't good enough for Kat and I'm not being funny enough. And <laughs> this isn't interesting or I should have said this or, or that. Go, okay. Or every single thing that's happening right now, me and you talking to each other, is absolutely correct. And why don't I just assume that? 
And we'll get more juice out of this if we just assume that this is going perfectly and something more interesting will happen than, oh, God, that was wrong. Um, I, I, for me, I think that's a, that's a muscle that's well worth training as an actor is taking a breath and going, okay, everything that's happening right now is correct. So how do I, so it's important for me to be present with what is happening because the minute I start thinking about what I should be doing or what I'm not doing, I'm not paying attention to what is happening. So would you call that muscle acceptance? Yeah. Yeah. I, I would observation, mm-hmm. breath, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. patience. So like even when like, cause we all have those moments in our lives while we're acting and in our lives where we're like, Ugh. Yeah. Like, it didn't want that to happen that way. Like yeah. I blew it or sometimes it's a slow burn. Like, you know, yeah. you realize 20 minutes later that you right. shouldn't have said that thing. So then, so then like your way of coping with that is deep breath, self, some kind of self-talk, some affirmation. Like what do you, yeah, and I fail probably more than I succeed. You um, fail at like at letting at acceptance. Oh, the, the, the critical voice in my head is very loud. And, um, <laughs> But I think sometimes it's worked to my advantage. I am um, going back to, you know, whatever happens, it's probably the correct thing. I had, um, I did a series called How to Make It in America. And when With I auditioned BG. for it. BG will be on this Instagram. show. Yeah, he's going to do it? Yeah, awesome. he'll do it. Yeah, for sure. So I originally auditioned for his role on the show, on that show. And, you know, it was like really cool, introspective New Yorker guy. <laughs> and, um, and then they called me back for this smaller role of kind of the guy who um, really wants to be with the cool crowd and he's this wealthy trust fund guy who uh, just wants to be friends with Brian's character and Victor Rasuk's character. Um, and he was like kind of the comedic relief and then also this really heartfelt sweet guy who wants to be accepted and is w- willing to do anything but also really loves these guys. And so I went on a call back and then they said they want to see you one more time and uh, it was just me and Steve Levinson, who's um, Mark Wahlberg's producing partner. And, you know, they'd done Entourage and in treatment. I was like, oh, my God, this is huge. I think he was in Boardwalk Empire. And it was just me and him in a room. And, and I was really excited to show him that I'm a New Yorker. I was like, I'm going to go into this audition. And it's going to be he's definitely going to cast me because I'm such a New Yorker. <laughs> and I'm going to show him this thing. And I went in and I did the scene. And there was just like him and a woman recording it on a camera. And I just like read it twice and he was like, okay, yeah, that's good. Thanks so much. And I left and I was like, oh my God, I just tried so hard to impress this guy. I think <laughs> I missed the boat. All I was thinking about was proving to him that I was right for the show because I was a New Yorker. I wound up booking it, I think because that was the character. The character wanted to be accepted right. and I didn't even realize I was doing that thing. And I was like, HBO, please, please see the how right I am. Please right. show. And I... I, I, it wasn't like some game I was playing with him. But anyway, point being, my self-doubt at that point, my need to be accepted, turned out to be the thing I needed to do. Whereas if I had gone into the audition and been like, okay, I need to use my own self-doubt to channel, <laughs> it wouldn't have worked. But right. I was genuinely trying to make this guy believe I was great for a New York show. Right. Um, right. So and you, might- and if you had, if you had said to yourself, like, wait, I better not do this thing where I'm like trying to impress him, then you might've missed that opportunity. Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I think my doubt Who just knows? worked in my favor at that point. Yeah. That moment. I had an experience like that. I was auditioning for a pilot and 
um, there was like, you know, I got to the third scene or something and like I finished it or whatever. And the director was like, that was great. And I was like, I kind of feel like I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I said that exactly those words. And they like all kind of lit up in this room and they were like really excited. And then I found out that I test, I was testing for it and I tested for it and I got the part. And they later told me that one of the the reasons I got the part was that I had said, I kind of don't feel like I know what the fuck I'm doing. And that's exactly what they felt the character felt. Right. (laughs) I see you do that a lot in your work. And I really like that about you do have a presence and a strength as an actress that I think is because you've done it for a while, but there's also this wonderful self doubt that comes through (laughs) in a beautiful way that you put into the characters. But because you have such strength and presence as an actor, it makes it so endearing. That's funny. I love that you're saying that. That's such great feedback. But it's like, I think there's some self doubt that I'm trying to think of an actor like, um, Paul Giamatti. Uh-huh. <laughs> or like he's full of self-doubt and there's nothing wrong with that. Like neuroses. Robin Williams. Sure. I mean, yeah. He I'm... has incredible presence and natural talent and honed talent, but you can also see him needing some validation yeah. and acceptance. And I don't see what you do as like this need for validation. And well, acceptance, no, but it but, is. But, I mean, but that's something I really work to not have. I mean, that's. But really... I think having that is fine as long <laughs> as you're trained and you can breathe and sure. you can stand there and deliver a line and reliable, and you have that presence and the skill. But I think our doubt can be such a wonderful thing. Like where, you know, Robin Williams wouldn't be as beautiful as he was without this torture behind those eyes that we all relate to yeah you know it's he's not just witty he's full of doubt and fear i also kind of wonder like does you know i mean i guess here's my question here's how i'll sort of ask this is like what what um what do you think drives you to get better as an actor or do you feel driven to get better or yeah i do especially right now um, I really want to get back into a class. Um, like I said, it feels really good doing this podcast because I've been listening to a lot of <laughs> other podcasts and I'm like, these guys really work and they're trained. And <laughs> I just listened to Sam Rockwell and I was like, man, he's like an actor. Yeah, I'm not, amazing. I gotta start learning that stuff. Yeah. Um, I guess because I've actually considered over the past few years doing something else because I've only been an actor my whole life and then it just doesn't get far. Mm-hmm. And, I really have no doubt I want to keep doing this. I hope I can keep doing it and can keep making a living at it. Um, and if I'm going to keep doing it, I have to get better. I just, or I have to find more stuff or, or do something else. And, you know, I've, God, I was listening to Rockwell talk about script analysis and how important it is to keep on rereading the script so that when you show up to do the scene where you, pull up to the house and get out of the car and go into the house, you don't have to remind yourself what's going to happen when you go into that house or where you're coming from in that Mm. car. And I'm horrible at that. I'm like, you need me to get out of the car? Great. Sometimes I'm better at it than others. (laughs) Like, yeah, I'm just going to work today to get out of a car. Right, Um, right, right. Like you're not like when you're when when the scene is literally like you're getting out of the car, you're not necessarily constantly reminding yourself where you're coming from or where you're going. I try. Yeah, but yeah. I, I can be so much better at it than that. And, you know, Rockwell was talking about how it's not a magic trick. You mm. know, 
Mm. It's not some weird voodoo he's tapped into. He does the work. And I think there's training that I have and work that I've done and, and, and um, instincts that I'm better at listening to than others. And um, I, I, I'm pretty sure I've put in my 10,000 hours. So that gives me something. Right. Um, but in so many ways, I feel like a beginner. And I feel excited that there's a ton of things that I haven't done. And I don't know if I'll get to do, you know? I'd love to do a great Sam Rockwell type movie. That would be great. I feel like it's pretty like consistently. I I don't know that I've ever met a great actor who's like, yep, I know what I'm doing now. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. like, pr- like Sam Rockwell is probably listening to somebody, you know, some el- someone else's interview yeah. uh, and saying like, God, the way he talks about, you know, well, because it's acting. it's not architecture. It's not real estate. Yeah. You know, and you know. And what do you like? What like what keeps you acting? Was there ever a moment when you were like, "What am I doing? Why am I even doing this? I I want to quit." And then you were like, "But you know, there's a reason for this, and 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 that reason may have changed from the time that you put on the clown pants in your parents' living room." I think the clown pants are still. <laughs> a big part of it, yeah. In that, I I think I'm an attention whore. I think I I try to come off as humble as much as I can, and I recognize the importance of humility and and all that stuff. But I love um, I call it a Kobe Bryant moment when you can be in a scene and you're not thinking about it, and things are happening, and you're getting laughs or capturing uh, an emotion and then something builds off that um i don't get it as much as i would like to um but i i'm chasing that um i can you know remember the few times when you can you're 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 doing a scene it usually happens on stage when you've done something 30 times and then you're doing it again and then just something happens and something else happens and then you can even be aware of it like oh my god something really cool is happening right now and it keeps happening um, I call it Kobe Bryant because like he knows he's getting the ball and he knows he's going to make it. Right. And it's kind of outer body, you know, Andre Agassi, Andre Agassi talked about, uh, there's times when the tennis ball looks like it's the size of a beach ball and it's just, the game just becomes that much easier. Right. Um, so I think I'm chasing those moments. Um, I don't know what else to do. I act like on a very practical basis. I don't know what else to do. I've thought about going back to college and everyone's to college and I would like to enroll in some classes now. And I'm like, okay, so I'll take philosophy <laughs> and carpentry and French and art history. And what do else? you think that's a prerequisite? I mean, like a lot of people say, you know, only be an actor if there's literally nothing else you can do or, or nothing else you want to do. Like the, 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 that acting is hard enough that unless it's literally the only thing that you feel like you want to do, don't even bother. I think that's because of the rejection. I think the reason that's good advice is because your um, your soul, your ego, your patience will be whipped. And um, uh, you are told no so much. And, you know, sometimes it just feels like they're saying, you were good, but you weren't good enough. You were you like we could see you in it, but you weren't good enough. And how do you do, how do you, how do you, how do you get, because I, uh, we, yes, I think like, I think you would agree with me. There's not an actor in the universe who has not experienced some 
rejection. Or if they haven't, they will. Right. Like it's going to happen. I mean, even if it's like you're talking like the top, 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 top level of actor. I worked with some guys who just walked into huge success and that wound up hurting a lot more in the long run than the people who had to work for it. People that just got something right away. Sure. Or, or disappointment, right? Like there's a lot, like, 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 it doesn't matter if you've won Oscars. There's still going to be a part that you really want to play that right. somebody else is going to get. And I think it's the thing that after you win an Oscar, it's usually your, the career doesn't go that well. Sure. Totally. It happens um, all the time, right? But how I deal with... Yeah. How do you deal reg- with rejection I and disappointment? I used to do a thing where um, when I didn't get a role that I got close to, I would give myself 20 minutes of complete self-pity, woe is me, <laughs> just like unadulterated anger victimhood um and then i uh and what does that sound like like fuck them don't they see i'm the best i hate myself uh it's usually anger and like hitting the console in my car yeah or throwing things or just like you got a real temper tantrum and or calling someone and just talking about how fucked up it is um or just the feeling or letting myself feel the thing yeah um but when my show just got canceled, before it was officially canceled, um, I kind of got word that it wasn't looking good. And I called a friend right when I found out about that. And I said, so what I usually do is like I give myself 20 minutes. And he said, how about you don't do that? Hmm. How about you just don't honor that irrational part of you? Hmm. Um, okay, moving on. And how did that work? Did that much feel- better? So then, when I found out that the show wasn't going for like officially, it it really um, it just seemed I, I I was able to see all the blessings of it rather mm. than what wasn't happening, mm. you know. Um, and uh, and have you like have you had moments um, like I mean, it sounds like you know you you've really like. Th- not getting this show has been expansive for you and you've grown from it, but have you had moments where you have like wanted to be bummed about it or, Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. But you just haven't indulged it or I I have, I'm saying, are you talking about this particular thing? Yeah. I guess like, like, like where, so what do you do with those feelings then? If you're not giving yourself this boundary 20 minutes right now at this point in my life, I just have so many things to be grateful for Right. that it's really hard. You know what it is? I've gone down the road of self pity and negativity so much in my life. And I fear going down it. And I know that nothing comes out of it. Mm. Nothing. Mm -hmm. And I'm not working right now. And um, thanks to a book that you gave me, (laughs) I'm writing for 45 minutes a day. And I'm writing freely without needing it to be the greatest movie of all time. And it's not even a movie. It's part movie, part book. I don't know what the hell it is. But I'm putting the time in. um, And dealing with the relationships in my life. And... Um, I was running on the beach this morning and I'm here doing this and you know, something I learned doing Scorpion is that being an actor, you might as well learn as many things as you can learn. One day you might need to ride a horse, do some horseback riding. You know, you might need to play basketball and look like you know what you're doing. 
play some basketball. Right. Um, like follow, just follow, follow whatever urges you have. Learn some stuff. Yeah. It might come in handy. And if it doesn't come in handy, you've learned something that you might enjoy. And I feel like that's pretty universal advice, right? Yeah. Like for anyone ever across any field, like, you know, if, if you're curious about picking up chemistry. <laughs> yeah. Why not? Get a chemistry set. See where it goes. Yeah. Um, my dear friend Keith Nobbs, who we both know yeah. and love, um, got me to, or he was doing a triathlon and I wasn't working. So I was like, let's do a triathlon together. And I didn't know how to swim and I never thought I could do it. And Wait, you didn't know how to swim at all? I knew how to not drown. I didn't know sure. how to like competitively swim. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and I learned how to do that. But so much stuff has come out of doing that triathlon. Hmm. You know, the knowledge that I have physical ability and I, I can do something that I at first think I can't do. And um, there was a moment when I did the swim, when you swim out like half a mile away from the beach and then you have to turn around and swim back. And I remember right after I turned around, I lifted my head up and I saw how far away the beach was. And I was like, I'm never going to get back there. <laughs> and in my head, I was like, well, all you can do now is one stroke at a time. So do you trace, cause like, you know, it feels like what you're essentially talking about over and over and over again is this ability to trust that what is happening, yeah. whether you got too far from the shore or whether you didn't, the show didn't get picked up or whether you did something that you regret at the audition, like what, what happened is what's meant to be happening. And yeah. would you trace that sense the sort of what feels like a, a life philosophy almost, or like, would you trace it back to that those meditation sessions when you were I think that's part of it. I think every acting class or training that I've had has part of that. I mean, you've worked with Kim Gillingham. Right? Oh yeah. And you know she's oh, yeah. you know, Kim Gillingham's like an for those of you who don't know, she's an incredible acting coach. I mean, she's so much more than that even. Yeah, I mean and she works a lot with uh Carl Jung philosophy mm-hmm. and your subconscious and your dreams and you know, very all her stuff is all about this is here for a reason. This audition, this job, this mm-hmm. actor who drives you crazy is here for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, whether it's that or, you know, we keep on bringing up Chris Bay's, you know, clown work is all about, you know, the insecurity and the ugliest part of yourselves and the part that you're hiding and your nervousness and your excitement. It's all here for a reason and it's all correct. Um you know, and- God, I so want to talk about Chris Bays, and we—I promise you—we're gonna. But like, I just want to break this Kim Gillingham down thing. I'm yeah. really glad that you brought her up because she, one of the things that I f- I find she does so well, and maybe you can like—you're already sort of describing it, but maybe you can speak more about it because it, it is sort of like because we're on set a lot, right? As actors, we're on set or we're in rehearsal or whatever. But like, we're in an experience. We're in a working environment, just like somebody would be in an office or, you know, if they're a student in a school or wherever they go on a daily basis. And it's like we are then like but our job, which is an interesting thing, is to like pretend that we're not there Mm -hmm. (laughs) in that environment. But but what Kim Gillingham says is like we can't like we're shooting ourselves in the foot if we're actually pretending that we're not also that there's not people there filming yeah. us, that there's not somebody who just has to do our hair, that there's some, not somebody who's knocking on our trailer door to yeah. inviting us to set. So like 
what do you can you talk about like what the parallels might be like for somebody who's sitting in an office and like really maybe wanting to get out of the office or sitting mm. in an office and stressed about a very important meeting they have later or mm. you know a very important whatever business dinner or whatever like mm. how can you talk about how somebody in their office who mm. has anxiety about being in that environment or their factory or where, like wherever they're working, you just talk about like how they might apply some of Kim Gillingham's work to their day. I mean, I don't really feel fully qualified to answer that question, <laughs> but something that I mean, just I like do... mess it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Cause that's what Kim would say. Don't be perfect. Mess it up. The, the thing that comes to mind regarding the work that Kim does is, uh, viewing your life as a dream. Hmm kind of going over everything that's happening, the desk you're sitting at, the microphone you're sitting in front of, the view out the window, the traffic you're sitting in, um, you know, approaching it just as something that your mind is interpreting. And again, assuming that this is all happening for a reason mm. and there is something wonderful to come out of it. Mm. And it's a search for that. So sort mm. of being in the world, but not of it, like Jesus. Oh, my God. <laughs> there was just a Stevie Wonder lyric in As that um, he says that. Yeah, that like, how dare I? Oh, God, I wish I remembered the lyric. Can we look at that? It's, it's like towards the end can of we As. Get, where can we get our come, producer, Chris gets like this, and Your children, great children, great, great children. Um, as? Um, it's something about you think you're in it or you're not of it, and that's how you get to hell. Um, but, uh, you know, there's – so I guess all I could offer in my experience is that the quote-unquote misery I experienced as a spoiled 18-year-old thinking that I was owed all this stuff gave me the necessity of gratitude at my age now. Mm. Um you know, you've written a ton of stuff. You've created a ton of stuff. I don't know if you've experienced this thing, but writer's block can lead to a dam bursting, mm -hmm. you know, of ideas and inspiration. And you're like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I don't know, but I'm going to sit here. Like nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Nothing's happening. Oh my God, something just happened. And then it just bursts through. Mm. And, you know, perhaps all these feelings of discontent and need and wanting are just a sign of something about to happen. Mm. Or it's a, 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 a warning light that we need something. So get into it. Lean into the thing. Lean into the discontent. Mm. Um, you know, the uh, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way does that too. Mm -hmm. That like, okay, jealousy is not the greatest thing in the world, but lean into it. What are you jealous of? You know, like I, I, I envy Jonah Hill's ability and the fact that he made was able to do that in that movie. I don't envy Jerry Brown for being governor of California. So I should probably not pursue the governorship of California, but I would really like to be able to do what Jonah Hill did right. in that movie. You know, right. like I envy that you've gotten this podcast together so that maybe that's something I should look into. Well, and the acceptance of that envy is like what allows it to, what do you got? That God knew exactly where he wanted you to be placed. So make sure when you say you're in it, but not of it, you're not helping to make this earth a place sometimes called hell. Whoa. What? That's, that's, that's very in impactful. That's yeah. the Stevie Wonder lyric. Yeah. Wait, can I just see it one more time? <laughs> um, 
that God knew exactly where he wanted you to be placed. So that's exactly So that's what, what we're talking about, exactly right? It's saying. the faith. Yeah. It's like or the you you know faith is a loaded word but like you can call it this trust that right. you let's say you're God, right? That right. we know exactly we trust that where we are placed is exactly where yeah. we're supposed just, to be. Just assume that this was right. Assume that this was exactly what was supposed to happen. So make sure when you say you're in it but not of it, right? You're helping to make this you're not helping to make this earth a place. So when you say I'm in it, but not of it, there's two possible ways to interpret that. Like one is, well, I'm in it, but I'm not of it. Like I'm better than it. And that's a place. That's something that would make this place a hell on earth. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I had a moment, uh, I, you know, I've done jobs where I'm like, I'm too good for this. I'm, I shouldn't be here, you know? Where I was like literally saying, I'm in this. I'm actually right. in this. But I am not part of this. of this. Right. And when I do that, I'm making the experience more miserable for myself. And I'm also missing out on an opportunity to maybe I have done more than the people that I'm working with. But I have an opportunity to share something with it and make this project a better project. Right. Or and then, and, and in so doing, make yourself learn something become a better person oh my god i tried i thought i knew what this ad was doing wrong and how they scheduled their day but now that i'm just a part of this i can see how hard they're working and the dilemmas but the minute i say no 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 no, i'm better than this i shouldn't even be here i'm part of this but i'm i'm not one of these people i just miss so many opportunities you know i shouldn't be in this office i shouldn't be sitting in this traffic okay that that's a way to go about it. Well, so describe the the other version of you're in it but not of it. The 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 version that's not about making this place a hell on earth, but the version that's about actually, um, sort of uh, trusting, like the like being in the dream, right? Like so, describe like let's say you're no. you know whatever where 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 so anywhere. So do with me because I, I'm trying okay, to remember yeah, the way so, Kim works. All right, so like, let's say you're at Starbucks, right? right. And you're like you don't want to be at Starbucks. You want to be what like a computer programmer? Yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah, know. Is that a yeah. lame job? Like no, a, you no. want to be a graphic designer? Yeah, okay. Yeah. So and but you're yeah, a barista, right? And you're like, ugh, this is like if I have to make one more half calf mochaccino frappe, whatever. I am gonna just like off myself, right? So you get so many opportunities working in Starbucks to um, fantasize mm-hmm. and make up anything you want and assume that things are going to be fine and that God, for lack of a better word, mm-hmm. has you there for a reason and you're, you're going to get to wherever you're supposed to be, that this is the time that you have to, to in your brain, do whatever you want and do it however you want. Because when you do get where you think you're going, you're going to be judged, you're going to be um, critiqued, and there's going to be a lot more riding on the line. So now that you're at Starbucks and you work 11 hours a day and you only get an hour or two a day when you're not making espresso to fantasize and design, you can do whatever you want. So enjoy that freedom because when your dreams come true, there's going to be a lot less freedom. Yeah, I love that. And then also like, you know, maybe there's like a way to trust that, like if you really dig into the experience of 
hating being there right. or, or you really dig into the experience of like that need to get out and do something else that, that, that digging in, in and of itself will be fruitful yeah. when you do have those two hours. Yeah. Yeah. There's, um, you know, I, you know, the, the writer's room on Scorpion, um, you know, they had a ton of work to do. We did 25 episodes a season. They were hour long. So many things had to happen. They were such busy writers. And the showrunner said, you guys have to leave here at five o'clock every day, no matter what. And his point was, if you're just sitting here writing all day, you're going to have nothing to write about. Mm. I need you to go live a life, go home to your kids, watch some TV, do <laughs> things so that you will get some ideas. Yeah. Um, and I think that goes beyond writing. Right. You know, if you're designing a building or launching a startup or whatever your job as a barista might really serve you <laughs> yeah and it, it that's the opportunity to think of something interesting whereas when you have to do the thing when you have to actually start doing the legwork of the startup or designing the building or, or whatever you're not going to have much time to be creative and think outside the box because you have so many tasks. Right. Um, and um, and then, you know, and then look, you're sitting there designing something and all of a sudden you remember that you did an incredible thing on top of a cappuccino that right. is suddenly like the mo uh, like the logo for your next thing. Yeah. Or whatever. Yeah. And you don't know where it's going to come from. So, okay, so let's talk about and Chris And stay Bates. off your cell phone. That's... Yeah, well, yeah, just... so that's a practical, that's a really... So before we talk about Chris Bates, just tell me tell me that. Like, what what are your practices d on a daily basis? What? And, I mean, I guess the question is, do you have practices right before you walk on set? Do you have practices right before you go to work, before you do a live show that you also have in your daily life that feel like they sort of stoke your creative fires and make you feel? Um, uh, short of an emergency, I don't bring my phone to set. Um, uh, and I'm probably 80% successful at that. Wow, that's Sometimes incredible. I just want to see what's happening with the Trump show or whatever stupid thing is happening in the news uh -huh. and I fall victim to it. Um, uh, and then, yeah, I, I try to not, um, I, I just think the cell phone is just shutting off our mind so much. And I, it's the reason I'm not on social media is just, that would just be another thing I'm spending time doing that is just shutting out any possibility. Totally. Again, I'm, less successful in life than I am on set of not looking at my cell phone. Um, and then something that's taken me a long time to learn. I think I've always been pretty good at it, but I've, I've gotten better at it and I need to be even better at it. It's just preparation. Mm. You know, that I think the most important thing for an actor is to know your lines, mm -hmm. know exactly what you have to do that day and know your lines backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that goes for anything. Right, you know, right, right. Just, and what does preparation do for you, like, uh, you know, psycho-emotionally? I've been fully prepared and failed, and it's so much easier to fail when you're <laughs> Just emotionally, if I did everything that I know I can do, and they go, oh, he is not the guy. I go, I'm not the guy. Right, They're right. absolutely right. Right. It's not that, oh, my God, that moment I missed. Like, you leave your cards on the table. Yeah. Like if you're prepared, you've done everything that you can do to give your best. I have absolutely not gotten roles because I was not prepared. And that sucks. And 
you just oh my god so, what if what if what talk if? a little bit about because like i know that this is also i mean this is i by the way same i love being prepared like there's nothing i love more than when i get like a few days with some sides or whatever um but there are times as actors when you you do kind of have to like pinch it right pilot like, season yeah. yeah pilot season you get like things thrown at you really right. really quickly or whatever you walk on set and somebody else doesn't know their lines and you have to like there's things that you can't be prepared Deadwood, for which was a crazy um dialogue show that milch would hand them stuff the day of yeah like, stuff they, like people that. would work on dialogue for weeks totally. like, actually i completely rewrote the scene yep. yeah totally yeah. i think sorkin does that yeah. i think um matt yeah. weiner on Mad Men did that so how do you so then so then what what do you so how do you approach again i think you assume this is exactly what was supposed to happen mm-hmm that's the whether first that's, step. Always. Whether that's true or not, right. it doesn't matter because it's happening. Right. And if Aaron Sorkin or David Milch or whoever is running the show says this is the scene you're going to do, you know, short of a handful of actors, that's what you're going to have to do. And uh, or if you want to make us think about it, great, make us think about it. So that's the first step. You say, like, this is meant to happen, okay. so I can trust that this, that I'm in. Like, it's sort of, there's like. I'm in, and, and okay, so what does the day look like? Okay, do they need me to go into ADR? No, great. Okay, so I'm doing this scene. This is going to take a while to light. I can look at the lines then. Can I ask the AD if I can have half an hour? Definitely don't bring my phone with me for half an hour when I'm learning these lines. Talk to the director. Say, hey, this is what happened. I'm going to do my best. Um, And I think just literally do all the things you can do. Um, and communicate and don't pretend that you're someone you're not. Because um, I don't think we're fooling anybody. Right. I think when we're prepared, we look prepared. And when we're not, we don't. And so sometimes, like, have you ever, like, because this has happened to me where, like, you reach such a level of trust um, where you really trick yourself into really believing that like, this is how exactly it was meant to go. And like, had I had these sides or this script three days ago, it wouldn't be as good where you're like, really like, you know what, this is how it goes. Like it's meant to be that I only had 20 minutes to do this. That happened to me with till death. It ha I mean, it it does happen where all Mm. of a sudden you're like saying something and you're like, wait, this, if I had prepared this, it wouldn't be as good. Like, what do you have to do to get into that? Like, can you just describe that? Like, how does that? I, I think it's, I, I, I don't know if there's any specific way to do it. Um, and sometimes it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, like sometimes you're going to be s- delivering the lines. You're going to be wishing that you had had that other 20 minutes or day or, or, or you'll get something thrown at you. And you'll do all the work you can do do, and you'll still blow it. Right. Sure. Okay. That's going to happen. That will (laughs) definitely happen. Um, uh, Again, I I think just doing the things you can do. Right. Because when you don't do that, you also come in with a ton of doubt. And that's the worst thing in the world Mm -hmm. um, for an actor. Mm I I once – I did this play – and I became friends with the writer. And years later, um, he told me a story about how I went in for the audition and I had the complete wrong idea about the scene. I was just wrong. Everything that he thought I, well, he, they intended for the scene, um, 
I missed the boat on. And the way I did it was wrong. But he was like, you committed so much to the way you did it that that's why we gave you the role. Wow. It was the wrong choice, but you really went for the wrong choice. I had no idea. And I've actually done that a couple times. Um, and if I had known it was the wrong choice, I probably wouldn't have committed to it. I was like, no, no, <laughs> yeah, this is, I, I was just stupid. And I missed the boat on what they meant the scene to be. Um, and I think if I had, I don't know, like made a quick decision on it, which I've done before and not prepared for it, and then like made a quick choice and not really committed to it, it just, I, I would have shown my unpreparedness and doubt rather than I'm completely wrong, but I'm doing it as best as I can. Right. So being prepared helps us like stave off that little bit of doubt and that, that anxiety that is always kind of there. Right. Right. Um, and, and, and I don't think any actor should ever fool themselves that they're, that it's always going to be better if they're like not prepared. Or... Well, what I was going to say was, yes, I think that's a dangerous place to go. Um, or maybe you know yourself and like that's, it sounds that's, off the cuff right. because I don't really know the lines. But I, what I was going to say was anyone who um, thinks they can uh, transcend doubt. I mean, of, of course, we all get nervous and we all have self-doubt. But um, anyone who thinks uh, that they can fool the audience into thinking we just shouldn't be lying, you know? Right. Like there's, there's a level of doubt, like, Oh my God, I really want them to like me and love me. And I only was able to look at this for an hour and here we go. And there's a level of doubt of like, you know, I had my whole night free right? and I only looked at the sides for 10 minutes, but I'm going to fool them into thinking <laughs> right. like if you really only had 10 minutes and you gave it your all, I think that's fine. But if you had six hours and you only gave it 10 minutes, that's going to show, I believe. I, I do, too. I remember hearing on the Oprah show, uh, <laughs> on the Oprah show, sure. at some point Oprah said, everyone knows what everyone's thinking all of the time. Yeah. Like, on some level, if you're thinking, like, I should have done this differently, everyone in the room is thinking, she probably should have done that differently. Yeah. Or at least she's thinking she should have done that differently. Right. Um, okay, let's talk about Crispies and, and just yeah. how, like, so this was a huge formative experience for you in your yeah. training. Yeah, so I went to the class. He he's he teaches clown at Yale now. He used to do Juilliard, NYU, and Yale. Did you have him at NYU? No, nah, I right. think. By the way, I could have, and it was like I just kind of blew it, and I did. So I just went because I'd been hearing a ton of people talk about him, and I've always loved clown, and. He describes clown um, in a, he says something that um, trying to define clowning is like um, loving how beautiful a butterfly is <laughs> and wanting to show somebody how beautiful it is. So you catch one and you pin it onto a bulletin board mm. to show them how beautiful it is. And now that the butterfly is pinned onto a bulletin board, it's lost all its beauty. Mm. Um, so I don't think I'll be able to really um, describe how powerful it is. But I think something that you can get out of Chris Bezos' class of what we were just talking about with doubt mm -hmm. and lack of preparation is coming on stage 
embodying all of that doubt. And the clown is nothing but doubt and want and mm. need and wanting to be accepted. And, oh, my God, I didn't learn my lines, and here I am, and I have to stand on this stage. And there's something so beautiful about a human being that's not prepared and is dreading it. And it's the moment in the dream where you're butt naked in front of your whole class and you don't know your lines, but you're just owning that feeling. Mm -hmm. And you're like, okay, you don't know your lines, but here's this beautiful moment of insecurity and doubt and that human shared emotion of, oh, my God, they're all going to hate me. Mm. And like, can we just tap into that and then give the world that? Mm. Um, some of the things you do in the class, uh, the very first thing he has everybody do is uh, walk onto stage and stand there and you don't get to leave the stage until everybody laughs. <laughs> and That's so hard. It's impossible. So I what mean, did no, you possible. do? So di and did it happen? Like was the class like five hours long? It happens with everybody. Long? Sometimes it takes five minutes. Sometimes it yeah. takes half an hour. But what you what happens is people come on and they try something and they fail. Mm -hmm. And they try something else and they fail. And then they get embarrassed. And then they get angry. And then they start doubting why they're in the class. And then they get angry at him. And then they get angry at the audience. And then there's and they go through all the things and the onion just peels off and off and off and off. And eventually, the clown comes out mm. and it's this beautiful. He calls it the three-year-old who can't see over mm. the wheel driving the car. And, um, you know, Picasso said he painted his whole life to learn how to paint like a five-year-old. Um, and clowning is that. And um, God. Would, would you say it's like turning up the volume on your most essential self moment to moment? Or, or your least essential self. Yes, sure. but also the most unimportant part of yourself who just wants to run around and be silly, uh -huh, uh -huh. you know, and that part, you know, like I was just now as I'm describing it, I, I'm thinking of Will Ferrell, you know, <laughs> and Will Ferrell is saying, shut up. Like, it's not that he's saying shut up. That's funny. There's just some inconsequential, joyful, childish wonderfulness inside of Will Ferrell that he has access to apparently like a light switch. Um, but at the same time, I've heard um, Sasha Baron Cohen studied at Lecoq, which is the famous yeah. clown school in Paris, I think for like three, four years. And that's where he developed Borat. Because Borat apparently is, um, there's a clowning uh, technique called Buffon, mm. which is the ugliest, most unattractive possible character you could find. That apparently the king used to bring the lepers in front of the court. And people, this is Commedia dell'arte, right? That's is that com a Commedia I know, I, character. I haven't studied Commedia, but okay. But Krista, I think Commedia is like masks. Yeah, masks. But there's like four. There's archetypes in right. Commedia, and I think that that might be one of the yeah, maybe. archetypes. Maybe okay. Buffon, I think might be part of. That. I don't know Commedia very well. Uh -huh. um, it's a Chris based thing. I have not done. And um, uh, but so Borat is the most offensive, disgusting, unattractive, rude thing he could think of. But we love him. Right. You know, he's racist. He's sexist. Um, he can't pick up on social cues. But there's something so endearing about that. Um, I think everything that Sasha Baron Cohen does has a childlike joyfulness that I really don't get it. And I think you just need a great clown teacher to access it. And I've it's helped me in everything I've done. You know, we've. We did an exercise where you have to pick an impossible task and try your hardest to get it done mm. and not give up. And there was a light bulb uh, in the studio we were working, and I was going to make the light bulb explode with my mind. And I sat there on stage 
for I think 20 minutes trying to make the light bulb explode. And there was a few mm-hmm. minutes where I was getting the audience to laugh. And that was when I was genuinely trying to make that light bulb explode. Mm-hmm. And you realize it's not the thing you're doing. It's your relationship to the thing. Which in this case, it sounds like was genuineness. I genuinely wanted to make the light bulb explode and it hurt me so much that I couldn't do it. So is it possible that what we're, what the through line is between like Borat and Will Ferrell and um, you genuinely trying to get the light bulb to explode? Like, is it possible that that's the through line is that genuineness or, or authenticity maybe? Yeah. I I think there's a, um, I think Will Ferrell and stepbrothers and I I don't know Sasha Baron Cohen, that well but i would assume there's there's a clown inside him and inside will ferrell and inside charlie chaplin and inside robin williams and i think most great artists if not all of them that they've kind of found their way to tap into it they've they've built the well and they know how to get there how to get to the clown within yeah yeah and there's all these ridiculous things that you do in clown class but for me, I was able to use it on a CBS procedural or, you know, I just did a low budget indie where I was a serial killer. So can you, okay. So, so when you're, when you're applying what you learned in clowning class to your role as a serial killer, can you just like, uh, distill that a little bit? Yeah, because... My genuine need to make the light bulb explode is my genuine need to see this woman, uh, for this woman to see how much I love her. Mm. Instead of trying to play what it means for this woman to not give me the love that I think I deserve. I really need it's it's my relationship to wanting that love. You really need it. And the same way I could be like, look at me, I'm gonna make this light bulb explode. I'm like, come on, light bulb. I need I told these people I was gonna do this. Explode, do it, do it, do it. That it's the same connection to it, and it taps into this childlike thing. <laughs> Universally, when Chris Bays was trying to tap into something with people, I hope I'm not giving away one of his secrets. He would get the actor to a point that they were worked up, they were angry, they were upset, and he would make them go completely downstage center to the foot of the stage, and he would say, look up. Now put up your arms. Now say, pick me up. Mm. Pick me up. And they would all just start bawling yeah, and crying. Yeah, yeah. Because we all have the little ba- three-year-old, and just pick me up, pick me up. Yeah. And it wouldn't be, I mean, even saying it, it kind of just gives me goosebumps. But then when an actor gets to an emotional place and there's that and he's saying all you want is for me to pick you up all you just are alone on the floor and you need to be held Mm. and it's brutal but there's that that little child that little five-year-old picasso is there in us and i think that's the thing we all want to see you know and what about is that is that is that also something that we all want to experience like in our lives like what like i think so like Aside from bringing that into acting, like how do we how do we access how do we what and and why do we want to access like our inner clowns when uh, we're in traffic? Do we? I mean, we might as well, right? I mean, there's the person sitting on the freeway cursing at the car in front of them, and then there's the person singing along to Taylor Swift. <laughs> you know, may we just, all sing along to Taylor right. Swift. <laughs> you know, it's just like that's a choice, yeah. you know, and we we have access to it. Yep. Easier said than done. I'm not trying to say this like I live my life like the clown and I'm singing to Taylor Swift every time I'm in traffic. Far from it. But um I think that's what I love about being an actor is 
though I don't always achieve it, I know that that's there and I know mm. that that's my goal. Right. And sometimes when I don't reach the goal, it makes me even more angry. Sure. But it can be exciting to go, oh, that's possible. I love it. You know? I love it. I think that's such a great, um, I think that's such a great place to kind of end right now. Like, end it. Um, but wait, I do want to ask before we really, really, really end, um, I want to ask, like, if you, you know, can you just talk, like, are there, you mentioned the book earlier, like, what, are there any, like, immediate books, resources, books, movies, videos, like, that you would recommend to to anyone and everyone that would be of value, whether they're acting books or art books or just regular books or? Um, I think finding the thing that really tickles you, you know, um, for me, it's Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> or um, Sasha Baron Cohen, um, or Thich Nhat Hanh. Sure. You know, there are things that I know my body and mind get tickled by and get excited by, and I allow myself to be tickled. And is there a specific Thich Nhat Hanh book or a specific Laurel and Hardy, Hardy movie? Or um, I think any Laurel and Hardy that's not um, colorized. Um uh, I don't think there's any bad Thich Nhat Hanh books. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I think any book that you get, you can open up to any page and don't feel the need to cover to cover anything. Um, or music or, you know, I, I just think it's so important, you know, in the artist's way, they talk about the artist dates. Yeah. I think that's so important. Just describe that for people who don't know what that is. Uh, well, the artist's way, anyone who is interested in tapping into the creativity should just by the artist's way and do it. And then it's taking an hour a week by yourself to take yourself on a creative date, whether it's to the movies or to the museum or to the park or anything that uh, your creative self is desiring. And I think that's, you know, Laurel and Hardy makes me feel fun. Mm. Will Ferrell makes me feel fun. Mm -hmm. Sasha Baron Cohen makes me feel fun. And then when I get to be on set or at an audition, I go, I'm kind of doing what they do. <laughs> I'm in front of a camera and I'm doing the thing. I'm driving to an audition. I'm, I'm on a set being an actor. This is so crazy. Yeah. And I don't know if I'd be able to do that if I was only reading Stanislavski all the time. Or Stanislavski's great. You know, I think that's fine to read and I think <laughs> you can get a lot out of it. But I think finding the joy in it mm. and continuing to find the joy in it mm. You know, watching Dumb and Dumber, watching whatever the thing is. I think it's so important to take ourselves back to that. I love it. I love it. That's very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you, Kat Foster. <laughs> Thank you, Eddie That's K. Thomas. <laughs> That's our show. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at I am Kat Foster and reach out to us using the hashtag ActingRealPod. For links and recommendations from this week's episode, visit ActingRealPodcast.com. Episodes go up on Mondays. Subscribe to the show and rate and review us. It would mean so, so much to us if you did. This podcast is produced by Hanami Sutton and Chris Mako with technical assistance by David O'Hara and music by Sean Hokinson. We love you guys. We really, really do. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Mm-hmm.